points in the health system. Welcome to the Tippis Podcast. The Tippis Project. It's evident from so-called paleo data, that is data from past climates, that the climate can change very abruptly. This is known as climate tipping. If it happens in the current global warming situation, we will likely face dramatic ecological and economical consequences. Therefore, one of the most important goals in climate science is to improve the understanding of tipping points in the Earth system. It has not, however, been easy to reproduce climate tipping, especially in the large state-of-the-art climate models we base our predictions of the future climate on. And if the models cannot simulate the climate system as it was in the past, can we trust them to predict the future for us? Louise Syme from the British Antarctic Survey. This problem of testing models on data from glacials, are we getting closer to an understanding of Why some fail and others succeed to reproduce abrupt changes during the glacials? Sure answer is yes, I would say. Um, I mean, I think this is a really interesting time to ask that question. Uh, Ten years ago, we were in a state where um, no model had successfully been run um, where it could spontaneously produce these really large um, tipping events known as Danskar-Doshkar events, which we know happened throughout the, the last glacial age. And we really weren't sure why that was. Since then, since some results were published in 2014, then we now have a set of about five climate models which can now successfully produce something that at least looks like these really big Danskar-Doshkar events. And when I say big, they're huge. So they happen roughly every 1,500 years during the glacial period. And the temperature in Greenland seems to shoot up by as much as 15 degrees over the course of just a couple of years. And then it stays high, what we call a, in an interstadial phase. Then over the course of the next 1,000, 2,000 years, then the temperature drops away back down to the previous level, sort of 15 degrees or so cooler. And then it sits in this cold phase for however long it is, and then it happens again. This massive um, DO or Danskar-Doskar type warming. So that's what we were looking for our climate models to do. And like I say, previously, no model had done this. And now we know at least five of them can. What's happened? What's, did you understand why the models now can? Um, not fully is the answer to that. Um, but part of it is that we can now run some of the climate models for longer. So because these things happen over thousands of years, then we have two main problems, which is firstly to set them up in the right way. So to set them up accurately enough that they they are trying to capture the main features of that glacial period. Maybe you should set them up. I don't understand. It's like, is that creating an ice age uh, environment to, for the models to kind of uh, be running? Pretty much, yes. So most of our climate models were kind of based on weather forecast models. So the climate models are more or less weather, your, your weather forecast model for, for that's used to generate your, your weather forecast for next week or whatnot. But then we also add on an ocean, a sea ice, and usually a land surface model to that as well too which means that rather than being set up to represent the weather of this week, 
then they'd really just need the top of the atmosphere radiation. So we need to know what, what sunshine is coming in from the sun. We need to know to run them what the, the correct level of um, the greenhouse gases, particularly CO2, was in the, the atmosphere. But we also need to be able to set them up correctly for what the ice sheets looked like at that time period. So when I say setting them up correctly, those are the three things really that I'm setting them up for. Mm. I want to know that I'm, I, so I need to know enough about what the ice sheets of that age looked like and they were huge compared with the present day. There's a very large ice sheet which doesn't exist nowadays on the North um, American continent. Uh, that's called the Laurentide ice sheet. And then there was also large ice masses over Findus, Scandinavia and, and some other smaller ones as well too. So we need to set our model up so we represent those ice sheets correctly and then we tend to look in ice cores to work out what the we look in the, the bubbles basically in the ice cores to determine what the past level of carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere so that's how we learn that and then we can do some calculations in terms of how the um, position of the the earth and the sun vary over that time and that's what determines what the incoming sunshine is mm. So we now know how to set our models up. We, we can set them up more correctly for that time period. But I would say the most important thing is then that we just need to be able to run them for a really, really long time. So we need really quite major supercomputers to do this. Um, so we can basically run some of our models, um, particularly one of the, some of the ones which are a little bit older. They will run a bit faster on current um, supercomputers. So that means that rather than it taking us years and years to run a simulation, which is 10,000 years long, it might be, able, might be possible that we can do that in months now. So that's really important in terms of being able to test the models, whether they can capture these really big um, glacial climate tipping events. And then you said like five models today can do this. Does that mean that it's only been tried on five models now but or does it mean that it's been tried on many models but five of them can do it in answer some models even where people have looked carefully they haven't found these type of events but probably the majority of the models it's still really too hard to search through all the possible climate states where they could occur so we're still not really very sure how many of the models can actually do this? I mean, for, for the IPCC, you can count up to about 40 models, basically. It depends a little bit about how you count as an ind independent. But I don't think more than um, a maximum of about eight models that I'm aware of, um, modelling groups have tried really hard mm. um, to, to look for these things. And definitely we think for some models, it's either they don't exist Or they really are the needle, needle in the haystack problem where, where, where they just can't find it. But it's, there's progress here, right? I mean, you, you're beginning to understand why some of these models can and why some of them can't. Yes, I think we, we are. Um, from, from the models which, where we have found the sweet spot, um, then what we can do is we can explore the climate states around about where they have these tipping events so we can slowly change the ice sheet sizes we could slowly change the co2 level in the, the atmosphere so we can see how big that sweet spot is so we can begin to map sort of 
over what range these tipping events occur. We can look really carefully at the mechanisms behind these events. We begin to understand how the different parts of the climate system interact to give give us these these tipping events mm. and and in essence they're really quite complex like they're an interaction between the ocean circulation the the sea ice build up and then wind forcing of the ocean and the sea ice so it, it's really a coupling of all the important parts of the climate system together and there's bits of that system which are sort of continuously changing through time um, and then other bits which sort of add noise to the system too. So, so the models which capture this behaviour really help us much better understand what these tipping events are and how they work. But they also help us understand how our models can capture interactions, if you like, between the tipping elements in the model. Um, so yeah. does, does that make them better models uh, for the purpose that we really would like them to be able to have, right? To predict how our future is going to be or whether there are going to be tipping points in the nearer future now because of the current global warming. Is, that, is it kind of a test of a model, really, that they're now passing? In a very loose sense, I would say yes, in the sense that the, the models, the, the fact that our models and our, our the types of models that we use for our climate projections can capture the interactions between these tipping elements should give us more confidence in them. That so I, I think that is is correct. But be, but because we're not in a climate state where these particular type of um, tipping events can can occur, then it's. It, there's, it's not a direct test. So it could be that a model can do this type of tipping event um, quite well, actually, potentially. But that doesn't necessarily say that it will do a different type of um, tipping point. People are particularly concerned about whether or not um, we're accurately capturing potential tipping points for the Amazon. I think if a model can capture what's primarily an Arctic-focused tipping event probably doesn't really say anything about how well it can capture the, the Amazon tipping point. So I think we, we have to address that sort of question in a, in a careful manner. So overall, it gives us a bit more confidence that our models are capable of capturing these interactions, which are key for at least some tipping points. But it really doesn't say that they're going to get all of them right. That's That would be taking it definitely <laughs> a, a few steps too far. Tips. The TIPIS project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme and a grant agreement number 820970.